Welcome. Let me add my welcome to those who are joining us online. It's great to have you with us. And uh, welcome, of course, to everyone in the building, especially those who are just back in the building for the first time in a long, long time. Great to have you with us. Let me pray for us as we turn to this Bible passage. Lord Jesus, thank you for your work in Levi's life. Thank you for your work in our lives. And I pray that by your Spirit, you would take these uh, weak and feeble words of mine and that you would use them to speak your life, speak your word of encouragement, speak your word of rebuke where that is needed into our lives. Above all, Lord, we pray that it would be your words, your living words, Jesus, who is exalted. Amen. We love a good conversion story, don't we? Uh, you know the sort of thing, you know, the arsonist who becomes a Christian in a juvenile detention center, or a drug addict who finds Christ through staying in a Christian hostel, or a, a suicidal single mum who finds that church is a family for her as she goes along to a toddler group, or a couple whose marriage is on the verge of breakdown, and they go on a marriage course, and the whole family land up being baptized. I don't know about you, but I love hearing those sorts of stories. Nothing gives me a greater delight than to hear of God's work to transform someone's situation, uh, to bring his healing and his wholeness, his forgiveness and his freedom. But what's the common part of all of those sorts of stories? What happens at the beginning which enables those stories to carry on. Now, I'm going to leave that question just sort of hanging there for a while. I'm going to come back to it later on. But uh, on the news over the last few weeks, the big scandal, of course, has been number 10, and uh, the parties in number 10, and uh, who makes the rules and who breaks them. And I think this passage is all about uh, Jesus' party culture and uh, the rules that he breaks as he's going about his business. Let's delve straight into it. And uh, verse 27, uh, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his booth. Now, uh, tax collectors are rarely popular. They certainly weren't popular in Jesus' day. Just a couple of chapters before this, uh, John the baptizer had been preaching, and we read this, that even the tax collectors came to be baptized, you know, as if they were the last people on earth that we would expect to get all religious suddenly. And uh, we soon found out, find out why. Uh, teacher, they asked John the Baptist, what should we do? And he replied, don't collect any more than you're required to. In other words, the tax collectors were abusing their authority to cheat ordinary working people out of their hard-earned cash. So think of, I don't know, a, a corrupt police officer who uses, abuses their authority to stop people and charge them uh, inappropriate cash fines and just pockets the money for himself. It's hardly the way to win friends, is it? And so Levi, uh, maybe he'd heard of Jesus because Jesus was the talk of town. Maybe he'd heard about the paralyzed man being healed. Maybe uh, he'd heard about the leper being cleansed. Maybe he was intrigued, secretly envious that so many people were finding joy and delight through Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Jesus himself walks up, stands in front of Levi's tax booth, and says to him two words which melt his heart. Follow me. And here's the first scandal in the story. 
It's who Jesus invites to his party. You see, Levi was probably used to people singling him out to call him every name under the sun. Or Levi was used to people, um, you know, going down to the other side of the road just to steer clear of this man who was regarded as a, as a traitor and a thief. But in these two words, Jesus exudes love rather than repulsion. He exudes invitation rather than judgment. And he's compelled, Levi is compelled by Jesus' simple authority. He's attracted by the chance for a new start. He's overwhelmed that Jesus should choose him of all people. And so he leaves everything and follows Jesus. Just like the fishermen Simon, James and John had done earlier in this chapter. Only if following Jesus hadn't worked out for them, they could have gone back to their boats and picked up their old way of life. But for Levi, there was no going back to his old job. No point reapplying to be a tax collector when he'd just abandoned his post without warning. You know, he left that lucrative career because he could sense that Jesus would offer him far more than wealth ever could. If you're here this morning or joining us online and you feel that Jesus would never be interested in you because of your past, or even because of your presence. Remember Levi, there is great hope for you because Jesus specializes in dealings with people's past and giving people a new future. He specializes in breaking the cycles of greed or addiction or crime or whatever it is and bringing freedom in its place. He specializes in taking despair and turning it into hope. And here's just a, a little bit of conjecture, but uh, I think it could well be true. Could it be that Levi was the tax collector who had cheated Simon and Andrew and John, the fishermen, out of some of their hard-earned cash? It's plausible. And so can you imagine the scene when Jesus introduces Levi to them and says, hey guys, here's a new member of the team. They would have been furious. I mean, can you imagine trying to get on this, this hard, these hard-working sort of manual laborers alongside this conniving, cheating businessman? It's quite a mixture, isn't it? It's not the way of the world to mix those sorts of people, but it is Jesus' way. And so if you feel that you would never fit into this church or to any church because you feel like you've got the wrong accent or the wrong clothes or the wrong appearance or the wrong skin color, whatever it is. Well, Jesus specializes in taking the most diverse people and molding them together into family. It's not always straightforward, but it is beautiful when he does it. There's no one who can't fit into Jesus' gang it's his family, not ours. And he's inviting you to be part of his family, to fit into his team, and to change us for the better. So here is Levi, uh, so excited to have found someone who uh, sees him for his needs rather than his reputation, someone who's going to give him a new future. And, well, he wants to share his good news and his excitement with his others, uh, with his friends. And so Levi organizes this great banquet to introduce his friends to Jesus. 
And here's the next scandal in the story. It's the, it's the sort of parties that Jesus goes to. You see, it's one thing to call someone like Levi to join your team. It's another thing to go to his house and to sit and eat with him and a bunch of his crooked friends. And certainly the religious leaders were scandalized. They knew the Jewish scriptures had said that the Messiah would love righteousness and hate wickedness. And so they, they step in and they say, look, what on earth is Jesus, this self-styled religious teacher, playing at? Doesn't he know that he's going to make himself ceremonially unclean by mixing with these people, these sinners? And that was their shorthand, sinners, for someone who was beyond the pale, beyond hope, beyond redemption, or so they thought. But Jesus knew that he wasn't going to be infected by their sin and made unclean. He knew that he was going to offer them a magic uh, cure for their hearts, a miracle cure. He knew they were sinners, but for him, a sinner was someone who had, by their own rejection of God and his ways, had hurt themselves and had hurt other people. They were people who needed love and acceptance, not further condemnation and ostracizing. And above all, he knew that they weren't people who were beyond hope and beyond redemption, but they were ripe for it. They were people like us. And so Jesus makes it clear in verse 31 that these are precisely the people he's come for. It's not the healthy who need the doctor, he said, but those who are ill. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the religious people, they were self-righteous. They didn't think their hearts needed mending. But Jesus had come for those who know that their hearts are corrupted, who know their hearts harbor prejudice and evil thoughts, who know in their hearts they've done wrong by other people, who know they have blocked God out of parts of their lives. And because those are the people that Jesus wants to rescue, those are the people that Jesus hangs out with. Read through the Gospels, and Jesus was completely relaxed in the presence of sinners and outsiders of every kind. In fact, he was so well known for attending parties and, uh, and invitations that his enemies accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. And they labeled him a friend of sinners. They, of course, used that as an insult, but to Jesus, that was a badge of honor a friend of sinners, and of course to the sinners themselves, he was a lifeline. So there was the scandal of who Jesus invited to his party. And there was the scandal of what sort of invitations Jesus accepted, what sort of parties Jesus went to. But what, we, what do we take from all of this? Well, let me come back to that question that I posed at the beginning and left hanging. I said that we all love a good conversion story, and I asked what was the common factor at the beginning of all of those sorts of scenarios. It's this, that a follower of Jesus took time to listen to someone, took time to sit down with them and have a cup of tea or eat with them, and to hear their woes, and to begin to share something of the hope that Jesus can bring to their lives. Yes, of course, there's also God's Spirit at work. Absolutely. And yes, of course, sometimes Jesus speaks to people directly through dreams and visions. But 99.9% .9 of the time, 
Jesus uses an ordinary follower of him, like you or I, to offer that first pointer to Jesus. And so if we want to hear stories of wonderful transformation of God at work in people's lives, if we want to hear those stories in this church, then we've got to be the sort of people who are known as the friend of sinners. We've got to be the sort of people who hang out with the sort of people that Jesus hung out with. We need to be the sort of people who sit and listen to the arsonist in the juvenile detention centre, or the drug addict in the hostel, or the suicidal single mother at a toddler group, or the man in the office whose relationship is on the rocks. We need to be the friend of sinners, the broken, the hurting, and the lost. We need to invite them to our party, and we need to accept their invitation to their party. Someone once said that Jesus' mission strategy was eating and drinking. And that's because sharing food together, having a drink together, is so powerful, isn't it? It does so much to to show acceptance and to build friendship. And when I think of all the things that uh, the church has done in the past, which have been best at helping point people towards Jesus, they all involve food or drink. Superstars offered breakfast, the luncheon club, well, that's pretty obvious. Beacon offered drop-in meals. Alpha had supper together. The Ark offered a simple cup of tea. The men's group chat over uh, a beer or over lunch. The, the walking groups stop for tea or a pub. They're all places where friendships can be built, where acceptance is offered. And I long for the day when we can do all that sort of thing uh, more easily than we're able to at the moment. But, you know, when Jesus went to these parties and meals and so on, it didn't tend to be in a, in a community centre. It tended just to be in someone's home. And although some of us are still very nervous about inviting people into our homes because of COVID, quite a few of us are happy to do that if we take things carefully. Or we're happy to go out to a coffee shop with someone. I read this week about a pastor who's done a straw poll across lots of different churches about the sorts of friendships that Christians have, and he concluded this. Few Christians can name more than five non-Christian friends who they spend regular time with, and church leaders are far worse. I was deeply convicted when I read that, because it's certainly true of me. And then he follows it up by saying this, I don't believe that this is a minor side issue. I believe it exposes a flawed understanding of the gospel itself. Ouch. You see, the gospel doesn't just say that God's love transforms our hearts. It says that the gospel, that Christ's love compels us, compels us to go and share the love of Christ with others. And if we're not hanging out with those people who aren't Christians, how are we ever going to share God's love with them? How are we ever going to hear those wonderful stories of transformation? You see, as I reflect on this story, I wonder whether the greatest scandal isn't who Jesus invites to his party or which party invitations he accepts. No, the greatest scandal is that Jesus was a friend of sinners. And I am not. How about you? Are you a friend of sinners? 
Now, I'm not saying this to make us feel guilty, but I do just want to tease this out a little bit more. You know, why is there this great chasm between, Jesus, with, between who Jesus hangs out with, Jesus as the friend of sinners, and me and quite a few of us in terms of who we hang out with? I think it's partly to do with the fact that loads of us are introverts and we find it harder to speak about our faith or to invite people to anything. But, you know, even introverts are generally happy to sit down with one other person for a cup of coffee. I think it's partly that maybe we feel that other people's lives are so sorted and comfortable that, that they don't need Jesus. But if we're honest, which of us has a life which is completely sorted and comfortable? None of us do. And I can guarantee that none of our friends have completely sorted and comfortable lives either. Or is it because we think that other people wouldn't be interested in Jesus in the first place? Well, if so, we've forgotten how captivated people were in their thousands by Jesus. And people still are today. As they read the Gospels for the first time, they're captivated by Jesus. Is it because we think that our own lives are somehow too broken and messy to be able to point to Jesus with any credibility? But Jesus doesn't ask us to be perfect before we share our faith. On the contrary, it's often through our very weaknesses and vulnerability that the light of Jesus is able to shine all the more brightly through us. Or is it because we don't like the idea of mixing with the equivalent of the tax collectors and sinners? Because we'll feel uncomfortable at the language they use or the jokes they tell or the stories they recount, the lifestyle they live. You know, it's normally just easier to hang out with other Christians, isn't it? I suspect, if we're honest, that last reason has more than a ring of truth about it for most of us. And so we need to call that out as an attitude which is more like that of the Pharisees than of Jesus. You see, I think there's an inner Pharisee in many of us. We're wanting to stay in our Christian friendship circles as much as possible because that is easier and more comfortable. Somehow we think that's more holy. And we want to stay away from the broken and the hurting, the difficult and the despised because we want to protect our reputation and because life is just easier when we avoid those people. But here's the thing. The Pharisees saw righteousness as keeping the rules, staying pure. And the more they pursued that version of righteousness, the more they hated sinners and the less like God they became. But Jesus saw pursuing righteousness as God's mission to needy people. And so he, he came to pursue the seek, to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And if we want to become more like Jesus and less like the Pharisees, then we need to love the sinners and hang out with them more. Yes, we need fellowship with other Christians too. Of course we do. But we need to be the friend of sinners. I think that's the greatest scandal, that Jesus was the friend of sinners, and I'm not. How about you? And it's not just to be the friend of people who are like us, 
but otherwise, you know, aren't, aren't Christians. I don't know about you, but I'm often very blinkered in the sort of people that I uh, am willing to mix with, you know, the, the people at the, the school gate with families of a similar age or whatever. But Jesus wants me to, to take off my blinkers and to open my eyes to see all the people who are in Shirley and Southampton. He sees the, the person fed up with working from home. He sees the illegal immigrant who's trying to do three jobs a day just to make ends meet. He sees the dodgy plumber who's ripping off an older couple. He sees the uncle who volunteers to do school pickup because he's got a little secret with his nephew. He sees uh, the drug dealer hanging around the school gate. He sees the shop worker who's got a bit of a scam going at work. He sees the care home worker who is at the end of herself because they are so short-staffed. He sees the tramp who's trying to find shelter for the night and the lap dancer who loathes herself and her job. He sees the husband hitting his wife and the taxi driver overcharging his fares. He sees the teenagers coming down your road, talking at the top of their voices and swearing, and the Afghan refugees so desperately lonely and desperately worried about family back home. He sees the massage parlour owner abusing one of his girls, and the trafficker taking someone's earnings from them. Jesus sees all these people. And he doesn't just see them, he is pursuing them. He's come to seek and to save the lost, the broken, the hurting. And he wants me and you to be the friend of sinners to those people. Others might think they're beyond the pale, beyond hope, beyond redemption. But Jesus knows they're not. He's the only person that can bring hope and redemption to those people. We need to be less like the Pharisees and more like Jesus. Only then will we, will we be able to rejoice with the angels over the one sinner who repents rather than over the 99 who don't need to. I think you can probably tell that I found this passage deeply challenging. I suspect it's deeply challenging for many of you as well. What I want us to do is to just sort of reflect quietly, process that, you know, pray about it quietly by ourselves as we listen to a video. And then I'm going to lead us in prayer after this video. So I'd encourage you just to, to do business with God by yourself where you are.